0: Daniel chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude changed towards them. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is God's word.
1: Let's pray, and we will dig into this wonderful chapter. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, this wonderful, dramatic, incredible account uh, that you've recorded from us from so long ago. We pray that you would teach us from it, impress these things on our hearts show us what it means for us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, what would you do in their position? Do you fancy your chances? Uh, there's a, a blazing, fiery furnace, and you're told, Worship this image or die in the furnace. What would you do? Pretty extraordinary, uh, dramatic story. I thoroughly agree with what Matt said last week, though, that these early chapters of Daniel can seem quite over-familiar to us. My problem is that whenever I try to imagine Daniel 3 in my head, it all looks like a cartoon. Uh, I've seen it so many times in children's books and, and in cartoons, uh, so it feels slightly unreal and safe and fun. Um, so as we start, let me remind you of how real all of this is. You can go to the British Museum some of us went from the students uh, back in January and uh, you can see a whole load of exhibits from Babylon from the time that this was written some of them connected to this very king Nebuchadnezzar and you look at those things and start to think oh okay this is real and uh, the empire was impressive and brutal and you can go to Iraq slightly more tricky, uh, and see um, Babylon itself. Uh, I've got a picture which is actually from the 1930s, uh, because since then a whole load of it's been touched up or built on uh, by Saddam and then used as a U.S. Army base. Uh, but there we go. Uh, it's it's really there. Tantalizingly, uh, just a, a few miles southeast of that very place, there's still a place called Dura this place where the image uh, was meant to be set up. And uh, in the 1860s, there was a French archaeologist. He went there. He found a huge brick pedestal that was 45 feet square, uh, 20 feet high. Nobody really knows, but it could be the base of Nebuchadnezzar's image or something certainly very like it. So as we get started, switch off the cartoon in your head. This is real. Play this chapter with the gritty realism that it deserves, because the Book of Daniel exists to show how god 's people can be faithful in a hostile pagan culture, a real one, not an imaginary one, as real as our culture today. If you flick back to chapter one, verse one, uh, you get a bit of context for the book. These events really happened. So Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the tyrant who ruled the vast empire, attacked and defeated Jerusalem. That really happened in 597 BC. He kidnapped the king of Jerusalem. He plundered the temple, took vast numbers of Israelites into exile in Babylon, including uh, Daniel, uh, who wrote the book, and tonight's heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, their feeling of exile being taken to this foreign place, Babylon, is underlined uh, as we were told last week, by a change of language, uh, Daniel 1 and 8 to 12 are all in Hebrew, just like the rest of the Old Testament, the language of Israel. But bizarrely, in chapters 2 to 7, it switches to Aramaic, the language of Babylon. The culture of Babylon is all around, choking the exiles, suffocating. Uh, the other cultures out of them. We saw in chapter 1 the standard policy of assimilation. The exiles were drilled in the the language and the literature of Babylon. They were supposed to despise their former unsophisticated life in Israel. Uh, Most of all, they were supposed to leave behind their God, the God of Israel, as a, a silly little superstition, shown up as powerless before the might of the conquering king of Babylon but their faith wasn't choked. They stayed faithful. And so in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar quite literally turns up the heat. And in many ways, this chapter is a straightforward contest for our worship. Like all of these chapters, uh, here's the table that Matt showed us last week, if we could have a a quick glance at that. Uh, The kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. Uh, And in chapter 3, we'll see Nebuchadnezzar representing the kingdom of man, being powerless to kill and God, the most high, powerful to save. But the challenge of the fiery furnace in chapter 3 is different to the challenge of chapter 1. If chapter 1 was all about the sort of gradual assimilation, enculturation, chapter 3 is about ultimatum. Those times when the culture around us puts Christians on the spot and says, right, here's a furnace. Or here's a gun to the head. Or some contemporary hit like destroyed job prospects, the sack from your current job, rejection from your family, a swift exit from a social circle. And in chapter one, they they could sort of choose their moment and resist at the right time. In chapter three, there's no such luxury. One hit, one chance, conform or die is the demand on them. Now maybe if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're probably aware that And Christians throughout history and some even today have gone to the stake or taken a bullet or gone to prison rather than uh, deny Christ, rather than turn from their faith. You might know that others have been disowned or beaten or killed by their families for converting from Christianity, to Christianity. Uh, That others still have lost careers and homes and money and security uh, for refusing to compromise their beliefs. And maybe you wonder, why do they do it? Why do Christians cling on like that? Why such an unshakable faith? Are they mad? If you became a Christian, would you have to do crazy things like that? So let's dive in. First, Nebuchadnezzar, this man, the man who demands worship or death. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. That is enormous, Uh, even if there's a 20-foot pedestal at the bottom of it. um, I couldn't find an accurate uh, height for Christchurch Mayfair. A rough estimate, 40, 50 feet. Anyone know? Nobody knows? So this was twice the height of the roof there. We know from ancient accounts that statues like this were gold-plated rather than solid gold. So if those maths were doing your head in a little bit about how much gold, don't worry, gold-plated... And we don't know what the image actually was. Maybe one of the gods of Babylon, maybe the king himself, maybe a combination of the two. You you see some sort of grotesque half-person, half-animal combinations in the ancient Babylonian statues. Whatever the text makes it very clear, this was Nebuchadnezzar's initiative. Verse 1 tells us, he set it up but then that same phrase is repeated a ridiculous number of times in the passage verse 2 the image he set up verse 3 the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up verse 5 the image of gold that king Nebuchadnezzar has set up verse 7 the image of gold that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up verse 11 the image of gold that you have set up verse 13 the image of gold that i have set up verse 18 the image of gold that you have set up over and over and over again he set it up make no mistake this was his image even if it wasn't an image of him Now, where would he get an idea like that to set up this great big gold image? Of course, we're used to the idea of dictators and despots uh, imposing their image all around their uh, territory. A friend of mine visited Libya during the Gaddafi years, and uh, Gaddafi's picture was absolutely everywhere. You could not get away from it, designed to constantly remind of his rule and hopefully inspire veneration from the people. Nebuchadnezzar had been given an additional motivation. Uh, Do you remember last week in chapter 2, God had given Nebuchadnezzar a dream of a huge statue, which had a gold head, representing, Daniel interpreted, uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself in the Babylonian kingdom. But then there was a torso of silver, then there were thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And uh, Daniel interpreted that as... uh, representing successive kingdoms that would rise and fall after Nebuchadnezzar's time. And then finally, there was a rock that destroyed the whole statue and then grew to fill the whole earth, uh, representing God's kingdom. And at the end of chapter 2, verse 44 says, the God of heaven will, same word that we've seen in chapter 3, set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Now, at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had seemed grateful for Daniel's interpretation of the dream, chapter three shows just how little it had really sunk in. Yeah, I'm gold. I'm gold, but I don't want to just be the head. I'm going to be the whole thing. I'm going to fill the earth. I'm going to rule forever. I'm going to get the worship of everyone in the world. Regardless of the dream, he felt sovereign and unassailable. And so he sets about getting the whole world to worship his image, verse 2. He invites all the officials from all the provinces of his enormous empire, which consisted then of most of the known world, uh, and invited them to a grand dedication ceremony, uh, which commands to pass on, verse 4, to peoples, nations, and men of every language, that they too might worship this image. And, oh, by the way, verse 6, it's worship or death, just to be clear whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Which, by the way, is a well-documented ancient method of execution, just in case the image of the fiery furnace makes you go all cartoony again in the head. Um, There is evidence of vast brick-making kilns the size of a city block, which a bloodthirsty monarch could easily just commandeer and use for execution purposes like this. also explains how several people could be thrown in and still seen from the outside. So banish the cartoons. This is terrifying, flesh-meltingly real stuff. Nebuchadnezzar demands worship or death, and so everyone must conform. What would you do? How would you react? Well, let me ask you this. How do you react or feel when North Korea is in the news, and you see the footage of those massive rallies in Pyongyang uh, with tens of thousands of people moving in unison, uh, sort of choreographed uh, in adoration to show their undivided allegiance and devotion to the regime of the Kims. I reckon you probably got two reactions if you're anything like me. On one level, you think, well, it is impressive. It's, it's a pretty extraordinary show of Unity and power and control, quite intimidating. Uh, you know about the, the vast images and statues that Kim Jong-un plus his father and grandfather have installed all around the land. You know that public dissent is almost unheard of because it's so ruthlessly suppressed with thousands dying in prison camps. Several people I had executed recently just for, uh, for having uh, propaganda material that had been sent in from South Korea. Intimidating, yes. But if you're like me, your second reaction is to kind of smirk a bit and think, it's a bit ridiculous. They're just propped up by brainwashing and propaganda and juvenile bluster. It's pompous, it's pretentious, it's immature to the point of being funny and our comedians who regularly poke fun at what goes on in North Korea are quite right to do so because the regime is more deserving of ridicule than respect. And that is exactly what Daniel 3 wants us to feel about Nebuchadnezzar. Those two same things. He's intimidating. He's also ridiculous. There's comedy here. So uh, look back to verse 2. You may have picked this up as Lewis read. These lists are designed to sound pompous and overbearing. He then summons the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he has set up. And then you get it all again. Verse 3. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled. I've been urging you to not see this like a cartoon, but uh, actually, maybe you should, a little bit. Uh, this vast... Entourage of overly titled officials, uh, intimidating as they are, is made to sound a little bit like a sort of Monty Python-esque bunch of politely earnest but dim-witted yes men sort of huddled together, sort of bowing and scraping awkwardly as they wander around. And then there's the music, more lists. Verse 5, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image. Therefore, verse 7, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image. It's pompous and ridiculous, and it's a global game of musical statues. It's all quite silly. Every time you hear music, life would be unbearable. Some of our musicians share a house. Uh Cy, the, the, the bass player, and Bertie, the drum player. have got a few others as well in the house who are all musicians. Imagine, every time one of them plays a note. Which, which direction the statue? That way, okay. And everyone in the house has got to do it. And everyone outside the house who hears it has got to do it. Grovel, grovel, grovel. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. We're meant to laugh at this. This silly man who demands worship or death. He's terrifying, but he is ridiculous at the same time. Now let's stand back and ask, what do we what do we do with this? If we lived in North Korea or in an Islamist regime or some other place which imposed worship or death type restrictions on us, then I guess uh, the applications would be pretty obvious. But we don't. So should we just feel grateful that we don't live there and pray for those who do, uh, and move on to the next chapter? Uh, blissfully happy? No, I don't think so. Three things to consider. First, uh, worship or death, in its most literal sense, could easily come to the UK. It could happen in our lifetime. I don't know if it will. I sincerely hope not. Uh, but what if, for example, militant secularism becomes so enshrined in our laws that sharing our faith in public becomes an imprisonable offense? Or what if on the other side, the rise of Islam eventually resulted in something like the North Nigerian situation where churches are regularly firebombed and Christians are regularly shot en route to church? Unlikely? Maybe, but this passage suggests that we should at least think about those questions, those scenarios. What would you do if being a Christian meant risking your life, if showing up here tonight was a fearful, fearful thing. Consider that. Secondly, for a few people here tonight, worship or death in a literal sense is already something of a reality. There's one or two here who uh, are in fear of returning to their home countries or to their families because of their refusal to worship the gods of their home or their family. The one time I've ever seen my father-in-law absolutely furious with rage at my wife, Tree is when we went to her granddad's funeral, and she very gently tried to excuse herself from taking part in a Buddhist ceremony where you uh, put money in a furnace as a gift to the person's next life. He was furious that she wanted to not do that. Now, his anger soon blew over. His Buddhism was pretty nominal. Uh, but I saw just a hint of the strength of feeling that is possible, the dangers that some face. But thirdly, for all of us, this worship or death ultimatum can show up in more subtle ways. We're, we're told over and over again, you must worship at the idol of career or security or money or pleasure or whatever the, your thing is, because otherwise, if you don't, you'll lose, you'll fail, your life will be over, you will be excluded. Uh, On Friday at Music for a Summer's Evening, I spoke with one of our musicians, Larry, who's singing tonight, um, about how teachers at music colleges in London have often been known to say, you must make music your God. must be your religion, otherwise you will fail. And many of you will be told similar things by your lines of work. uh, If you want to become a partner in this firm, then everything else must come second. Sometimes these things are slow, creeping, subtle influences like in Daniel 1, but sometimes they do come to us as ultimatums. Here's your new work agreement that binds you to this company in unhealthy ways that will keep you away from your church and your family. Sign here or you're out. Here's our new company or school or colleges, uh, newly rewritten secularist policy on a number of things. It's a document that says you'll have to promote all religions as true in what you say or what you teach, or maybe promote all religions as false, or all sexual behaviors as equally acceptable. Sign this, or you're out. Or maybe it's someone who comes to you and says, look, this is your final warning. One more mention of God to your colleagues, and you're out. Ultimatums. How can we stay faithful in situations like that? How will God sustain us when those ultimatums come? Of course, just as with Nebuchadnezzar, it does help to see the funny side, if you can. Music makes a pretty ridiculous God. So does the company you work for. I'm sure if you think about that for a moment, you just think, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Music, my company, God, no. See the funny side, see the bluster behind the threat. Even at the extreme end of what I've been talking about. So you want me to convert to Islam at gunpoint? I'm sorry. But a God so insecure and impotent to need to convert people by such means seems ridiculous to me. The kingdom of man, represented here by Nebuchadnezzar, can be very... intimidating sometimes in the ultimatums that it issues. Worship this idol or die. But if you look hard enough, you'll see the ridiculous side. And secondly, let's compare Nebuchadnezzar, the man who demands worship or death, with the God who delivers worshippers from death. So I've got four little subheadings uh, to describe what goes on here. Perhaps we can scroll down to those and you'll see Roughly where we're going. Uh, There we go. Fantastic. Thank you, Sam. That's fantastic. Let's just leave those up. Um, Let's get back to the drama uh, uh, one by one. First, they bravely resisted and got in trouble for it. Uh, Verses 8 to 12. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego take the decision to worship the God of Israel and not to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. And verse 7 tells us that essentially everyone else fell in line. Everyone else was bowing to the image. So these three guys, they are going to stand out. Imagine a North Korean rally, uh, and suddenly one person breaks ranks. (sighs) Can you imagine what would happen? Lynched in seconds, I would have thought. Sure enough, verse 8, some astrologers come forward to denounce them. Uh, A little bit mean-spirited, you think? Uh, Rather quick and gleeful to condemn, Uh, but we've seen these astrologers before. Back in chapter 2, these were the guys who couldn't interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, It's the same word for astrologers that's used in chapter 2. Daniel, with God's help, interpreted that dream. And presumably these astrologers found it very offensive when Daniel the Jew was promoted above them. As ruler of the province. Even worse, at the end of chapter two, in verse forty-nine, Daniel appointed his uh, fellow Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to be administrators of the province under him. So these astrologers have been waiting for revenge, and they go snivelling to Nebuchadnezzar, verse nine. O king, live forever. Grovel, grovel, grovel. You have issued a decree, O king, blah, 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 but there are some Jews who you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, we really don't like them, who pay no attention to you, O king. Now, a bunch of sniveling creeps these guys may have been, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have known that they would get in trouble. I just think it must have been so tempting to find a way, some way, to justify ignoring their consciences and just conforming with what everybody else was doing on pain of death. Best to fit in. Best to just do what the Babylonians do. We don't want to get into trouble. Think of all the arguments they could have mustered and used with each other, Uh, all the arguments we could use in similar situations. God wants to preserve his people, to keep us alive, to bless us, doesn't he? He knows we'd be bowing under duress, wouldn't he? So he'd let us off. He'd want us to just keep our heads down and stay safe. Think what all the, all of their Jewish mates might be saying. Think of the influence you guys have got in your positions, administrators of the province of Babylon. Don't throw all that away just for this. Think what good you, you could do if you clung on to that position just for a little bit longer. Think what Shadrach's dad would say when he phones his son and says, son, don't, don't resist this command. Think of your mother. Think of me. Think of how distraught we're going to be. Think of the sacrifices we've made to educate you back in Jerusalem. That's the only reason you got onto this government training scheme with Babylon. Uh, I'm telling you, don't throw all that back in our faces. And what about your girlfriend? Your mother wants grandchildren. Come on. These ideas, you can just multiply them over and over and over and over again. They're very easy to, to find. Plausible sounding reasons to compromise, to conform, to just let go this one time. But idol worship is idol worship. And so they bravely resist. And they get in trouble for it. Secondly, they trusted God's saving power. But didn't presume on it. Verses 13 to 18. By the time Nebuchadnezzar summons the three friends, he is absolutely incandescent with rage. He's ready to make an example of them. But he is a man of two chances. Nebuchadnezzar the merciful. Uh, His empire expansion policy was a bit like this as well. He would uh, attack a city the first time, but leave it sort of intact and give them a warning and say, now you need to grovel and bow down and pay lots of money to Babylon and then we'll leave you alone a little bit. Uh, But if it wouldn't grovel, then the second attack would be the destruction, the city would be burnt. So here the merciful Nebuchadnezzar restrains his fury just for a moment and spells out the final challenge, the middle of verse fifteen. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then this closing jibe at the end of verse fifteen then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It sounds supremely arrogant on his lips, doesn't it? And it is. But remember who he is. Remember how the so-called gods of all the surrounding nations have proved utterly powerless against his army, and one by one, all those nations have just fallen. Their gods have fallen, including apparently the God of Israel. The God of the Jews had been defeated. His temple plundered. The plunder of the God of Israel was now in Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's hands. So really, from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, it's a fairly logical statement. Come on, you, you poor, poor, defeated Jews. Which God is going to rescue you? Yours? Come off it. Bow. Now. And get it over with. But no. Verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you on this matter. In other words, we're not going to resolve this by talking. You're going to have to throw us in. Verse 17, here is their incredible trust in God. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. They know that God can save. There's no doubt in their mind about that thing is, they, they don't know if he will. We know the end of the story. We've had it read. They didn't. So they don't presume on God's rescue. Verse 18 is remarkable, isn't it? But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the, the image of gold you've set up. They knew God doesn't always save his people from the furnace in this life. Now, saying something like that in some Christian circles would be called lack of faith. But actually, these guys are a fantastic example of trusting what God has really said rather than what we'd like him to have said. God has promised eternal life to everybody who puts their trust in Jesus, but we have no promise that God will rescue you or me from any particular immediate danger in this life. He may have other purposes. We just don't have his word on that matter. A couple of years ago, I remember hearing a very moving interview with uh, a Nigerian Archbishop, Ben Kwashi, of the Joss region. Uh, I think a number of others were there as well. There, the, the Boko Haram group is regularly murdering Christians. And Archbishop Ben told some absolutely extraordinary stories about how he and his family have been targeted again and again and again, repeatedly almost killed, and yet survived, some, uh, sometimes in extraordinarily miraculous-sounding ways. And that is very, very wonderful, and we were all full of praise and thanks to God for those rescues. We prayed for the Archbishop's future safety. But... Despite all of that, uh, Ben Kwashi was very clear. God's word has no specific guarantee that Ben Quashie will be protected for all future attacks. He thinks it very likely that one day he'll be killed. God is able to save, he knows that. God could continue doing these miraculous things. But even if he doesn't, every time somebody says to Ben Quashie, worship Allah or die, He's going to continue to trust God anyway. He knows the ultimate rescue is in place through Jesus Christ. What an example for us, especially because those of us here tend to be facing dangers that are a lot less threatening than those. Be real about this. God hasn't promised that when these ultimatums come and you stand up and be faithful to him that you will keep your job that you'll keep your house, your possessions, uh, even your family. Not in this life. We don't have certain promises on those things. But it is worth trusting him, even if so. He alone can save and will save eternally. Thirdly, they had God's presence, and he kept them safe. So Nebuchadnezzar's fury is stoked to the max. The furnace is stoked to the max. The soldiers turn up the heat so high that even some of them get killed as they push the three guys in with all of their clothes on in the the days, long before fire-resistant fabric. Uh, And then in verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement. And we get another joke at Nebuchadnezzar's expense here. Literally, it's not leapt to his feet. It is Nebuchadnezzar was set up. The same word used all of those times about him setting up that image. And it's as if God wants our abiding image of Nebuchadnezzar in our heads is uh, not to be the serene face of the golden image, not the, the face of angry sovereign rage, but this face of helplessly defeated bewilderment. God wants us to remember the image of Nebuchadnezzar going, <gasps> staring gauntlessly into the furnace, as he's utterly unable to comprehend what he sees. And verse 24, what freaks him out the most is not the fact that the three friends look absolutely fine wandering around in the fire, although that's interesting enough, but that someone else is there. It's a hilarious conversation, isn't it? Weren't there three men? Look, look, I see see four uh, walking around in the fire unharmed and unarmed. And... The fourth looks like a a son of the gods, using whatever language he could in his own religion to try and understand. And so he calls them out uh, with not a mark or a singe or a whiff of smoke on any of them. Now, who who was in there? Who was with them? Uh, Well, by verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar is calling him an angel. Some have argued that this is Jesus himself in a a pre-incarnate appearance. Uh, The text doesn't tell us. One of, one of those two is probably right. Either way, God was with them. He was with them in the fire. He was showing his presence just when they needed him the most. Even more significant than, than the fact that they were saved in the end from this particular danger is this wonderful fact that God was with them in the fire. That is where the emphasis lies here. Now, those guys probably had no idea that God was going to show up like that, right there with them, so far from Jerusalem. But you know what? We, if we trust in Jesus, can have even more confidence than they had. Christians quite rightly point to the death and resurrection of Jesus as the sequence of events that secures our eternal rescue. That means we can be with God one day, face to face, forever, forever. But right now, sometimes God can feel distant, especially in times of trial, especially when we are facing these ultimatums and tests of faith. But there's another event that we can look to, which we're celebrating today, Pentecost. Uh, Jesus died, he rose, and then at Pentecost, he sent the Holy Spirit, the day that God came to be with his church, to live in the heart of every single believer. And so now we are never alone, never without his Spirit. Whatever ultimatum or danger or test of faith that we could face, he is with us, even more certainly than they imagined he would be with them. He's with us in the fires. Lastly, they astounded his enemies, and caused them to praise. Nebuchadnezzar will get a lot more airtime next week in terms of his reaction to everything that's going on, so we won't say too much about these verses. Nebuchadnezzar is powerfully struck by what has just happened. He's witnessed a potent combination, God's rescue and his people's trust. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar said, "'Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, "'who has sent his angel and rescued his servants.' There's God's rescue. Nebuchadnezzar has seen God's rescue in action. And then he says, They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. There's the people's trust in God. Do you realize the potency of that combination? How persuasive it is when people see those two things. We can present the gospel of God's rescue in Jesus. We must do that. We can talk about our own personal trust in Him. We must do that. The two together add up to a compelling vision of a rescuing God and His trusting people. Or maybe you're someone who's beginning to see those two things. You're looking on at Christian things. You're beginning to see God's rescue in Jesus and His people's trust in that rescue. And so together they are a powerful combination. Maybe is impressed. Therefore, verse 29, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything about, against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Oh, you've got to love him, the way he reacts to things. Um, and then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, so where are we at the end of all this? How do you fancy your chances? facing an ultimatum like that, worship or death. You might feel on the front line right now. Maybe you're a teacher, you're a doctor, facing newly imposed conditions on your work that fly perilously close to compromising your faith. There's an ultimatum on your desk or heading towards you that you're supposed to sign and you just think, I don't think I can or there's a friend, or there's a colleague, or a a potential girlfriend or boyfriend who's pushing you to the crisis point, and you're at the the point of giving in, going with the crowd, bowing to whatever idol it is, career, money, sex, or whatever, because you think, life, life won't be worth living without that. I'll lose. I'll be excluded. Daniel 3 says to us, look at that idol for a moment. See it for what it is. It is ridiculous. It is not God. It never could be. Refusing to worship it might have dire consequences. God doesn't promise to inoculate you from every one of those. But once you've looked at the idol and seen how ridiculous it is, look even more at God. He can rescue. He has rescued. And in the end, he will rescue He's the God who delivers his worshippers from death. And that is why he's worth following at all costs. Let's pray. Father, please help us. Please be with us. When each of us that trusts in Jesus encounters these moments, these ultimatums, these tests of faith. Please help us to see clearly the reality of the situation. Please help us to see that idols that we are being commanded to follow could never be God to us, would be disastrous as idols, disastrous as gods. Help us see that. Help us see, too, that you, the one true God, rescues that you deliver your people from death and we pray that we would cling to those promises tightly and never, never let go and please Lord seeing those two things would we be able to take decisions, would we be able to face up to these challenges when they come and stand firm for you, thank you Father that if we fail there is forgiveness in Christ but please help us to stand firm for him. In Jesus' name, amen.